You may remain standing for the word of the Lord to be read in your hearing. We welcome you all, especially if you're a visitor to Park City's Presbyterian this early morning service. The passage is found in the book of Acts. It is found in chapter 1. It is the account that Luke gives us here of the ascension of Christ. Hear now the word of the Lord. When the disciples had come together, they asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Luke gives us an account of the ascension of Jesus as he ends his gospel, as he runs out of paper literally and begins a second volume, the book of Acts. He starts that particular account with the ascension of Jesus. Three times the Bible says that Christ was received into a cloud. A cloud. This must undoubtedly be the presence of the Lord. The glory cloud. The Shekinah glory of the Lord that hovered over Israel in the wilderness days. The Shekinah glory of God that dwelt in the temple especially in the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. The cloud of the Lord that represented to the people some visible and yet amorphous manifestation of the glory of the Lord Himself. A cloud really that doesn't reveal so much as it conceals, it hides. Jesus was involved with that cloud on the Mount of Transfiguration. What an event that was in the life of the believers. Our text tells us that Jesus was taken out of their sight by this cloud at His ascension. 
that time when this text says he was lifted up. Jesus had said, if I be lifted up, I will draw the race, all of humanity, mankind, the species, to me. He spoke this not only concerning the manner of death he would die, that is, he would be lifted up upon a cross, but also what but happened here, the ascension of Christ. The Bible speaks of the life and the ministry of Christ in sort of phases. We, we hear about his pre-earthly existence, the glory of heaven, and then how he laid that aside in his humiliation to become a human and to come into human flesh and to dwell with all the confines of creation on earth as we all dwell. He came into our situation as one of us. And he suffered a life of numerous privations and humiliations. And he endured finally the ignominy of a trial and a beating and more trial and a crucifixion and death. And then he was put into the heart of the earth, laid into the dust. Humiliation, humbling, making himself of nothing, becoming a servant, becoming condemned, being executed, being buried. That usually ends it for any mortal. But then the Bible begins to speak of an exaltation. And the story of Christ, even in his humiliation, in the depths of his humiliation, the Bible says that he was buried in a rich man's tomb. Ah, just a little glimmer, just a little glimpse of the glory and the splendor of his regal majesty that he enjoyed with the Father. And in his humiliation there in that borrowed tomb, begins his exaltation. He was raised by the Holy Spirit of God with power to a completely new life. His body was raised in glory. He had not seen corruption. He was in a glorified body. And he, as we have spoken of now for the last two weeks, spent six weeks among his disciples, the same group of people that had seen him do everything else he had done, heal, feed the 5,000, do all of those things, teach the Sermon on the Mount, preach. But now he's in this glorified body and he's teaching them the Scriptures and he's teaching them all sorts of things during this period of time. But there comes a time when the Scriptures tell us that it was time for him to be lifted up to go beyond resurrection to ascension. 
really to go beyond ascension to enthronement. And the next time he appears, he will be coming in that cloud of glory. And the men in white apparel, who are probably, and no, well, no doubt, angels, give testimony, two witnesses. Things are confirmed with two witnesses. Two witnesses say to the disciples, just like you've seen him go into the cloud, he will return. He shall so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. That's the glory of the coming king, the conqueror, the one who comes to consummate. Now the disciples knew something of this scheme that I've been talking about for the last few minutes. The disciples knew that the Lord had always operated along the lines of seasons. As most of you know, there are two words in the original language for time. There is chronos time and there is kairos time. Chronos time is chronology. This happens before that, the 11th century, the 12th century, you know, time as we mark it by calendars and by clocks. But then there is time that is kairos time. It is time with meaning. It's not just the rotation of the earth. It's not just the ticking of the clock. It's important things happen during this chronos, this chronology that are significant. These are seasons and they're identified. Jesus identified a season in ancient history as the, as the days and the times of Noah. In the Old Testament, we find there was a designation of some times that were the seasons and the days of the judges. Certain things characteristically happened. And so the disciples know that there is this kairos, there's this seasonal development. And they'd been living through the most important season of divine history in their own lifetime. And just in the last three plus years, they had been in the most significant time. There was the season in which God incarnate walked the, day, the, the earth and communicated with them. And they had come to expect these things. They had heard Jesus speak of the future day at the Olivet Discourse. They had heard Him make reference to judgment and to end times and to events that would happen and to consummation and conclusion. He had talked of a royalty. He had talked of a reign. Even on that occasion, he spoke of his own authority. He said, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. He had piqued their interest. And the disciples were dying to know a little more about the scheme. Tell us a little more about the seasons. What does God have in store? How is things going to be different? What's going to be the flow and the development, the ebb and the flow of God's work on earth. And Jesus makes an interesting point. He says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. Paul uses these terms twice when he's speaking about the preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles. He uses it in the book of 1 Thessalonians and in the book of Titus. 
he speaks of these two things, the times and the seasons, the chronos and the kairos. And Jesus tells his disciples, it's not for you to know the chronos. You're not to know the chronology. You're not to know the day or the hour. You're not to know the date. So if you are a Millerite who sets, set a date, which is long since past, for the return of Christ, you're really outside the purview of what you ought to be talking about because you don't know. The Lord Himself said He Himself doesn't know the day and the hour. That's the Father's business. You're not to know the date. Will it be 70 A.D., 40 years hence, O Lord? You're not supposed to know that. Will it be 100 A.D., 100 years out? Will it be a thousand, a full millennium out? You're not supposed to know that. Will the Lord come back in 1948? You're not supposed to know that. That's the Lord's business. That's the Father's business. Will He come in 2018? You're not supposed to know that. Nor the Kairos. You're not supposed to know the chronology and you're not supposed to know the seasons. You're not supposed to know the seasons. It's the Father's business to wrap it up. What He did do was set the stage for what they should be doing right now from this moment on until the next time they see Him in the clouds of glory. And it is a straight line, it's a flat line, it's an unswerving line, it's an uncurving line, it's an unchanging line, and it is not a broken line. You are to be doing one thing from this moment until the next time you see me in the clouds of glory, and it is what? You shall be my witnesses. He said, as you go, make disciples. Teach them. Baptize them. Teach them to observe things that I have commanded you. I have the authority to give commandment. This is military language. The Lord is telling His disciples they have an army to run. They have a mission to accomplish. They have a task that He's given them to do. You're not to be fretting about the times and the seasons, but you're to be proclaiming the gospel to the world. In other words, you ought not to attend very many prophecy conferences and a whole lot of evangelism and missions conferences. <laughs> Your business is not to speculate and to become an expert on the seasons. Now that's a gift. The Lord gives us discernment. In fact, there was a whole tribe of Israel that had that gift back in the old days. You remember that? It was the tribe of Issachar. God gave Issachar, the men of Issachar, the ability to know the times and the seasons. They could discern the times so that they could advise Israel. There's a certain wisdom that comes in trying to discern what is God up to at this time and in this place. But that's not the important thing. In season and out of season, the gospel is to be preached. And that's what Jesus tells them to do. He says, you 
are my witnesses. And he tells them the way they're going to do it is they're going to start in Jerusalem. He would not let them do what they had. Every fiber of their being was to go back to Galilee, to go back to Capernaum, to go back to Nazareth maybe, Cana, some of those towns of Galilee where they had spent so much time and they loved it was home. They wanted to go home. Jesus wouldn't let them. He told them to stay in Jerusalem till the Holy Spirit comes. And then He would give them the power. And they said, you will be witnesses. The witnesses were those who were involved in the drama. The interesting thing about the notion of witness in the ancient environment was a witness was not just a mere observer. A witness was not just someone that stood back and took notes or rolled tape. A witness was someone that was involved in the event, involved in the drama, and had been there and was part of the flesh and bone and the eyewitness experience, and then would testify what they knew from the perspective that they had at that time. That's what the witnesses were. That's, that's who the gospel writers are. It's, uh, the gospels are unique literature. They're not novel. They're not fairy tale. They're not a straight didactic prose. They're not history in any technical sense. They're certainly not news reporting, as we would think of it. But they are the declarations and the assertions of the certainties of the eyewitnesses. In fact, the word witness means martyr. It's the maturia, is the witness. And a martyr is someone who's seen it, won't change his story, won't back down, won't recant, and if necessary, will give his life for the testimony that he renders. And that's who a witness is. And that's who the disciples ended up being. They all died for the witness of the gospel. How important is this notion of witness? Well, we've got to see a little bit of the heartbeat of the Lord when we read a particular chapter in Isaiah. And it's Isaiah 43. It's a long chapter. It has 28 verses. But let me just read uh, three or four uh, passages out of Isaiah 43. Now this is Isaiah who was a gospel preacher. He preached the gospel of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. He was much a gospel preacher as Paul. In fact, Paul couldn't preach the gospel without Isaiah. Living almost 800 years before Christ, one of the great writing prophets, but he tells us the heart of God, what God longs to do, what God is doing, what God is, is, is setting forth to His people. And listen to him in Isaiah 50, I mean 43, as he begins to talk about the Savior. Now thus says the Lord, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. Listen to this. The gospel comes from the, the emotion, from the heart of God, is love. God so loved the world. That's, that's where the whole saving urge comes from is that God loves His creation. He loves humanity. He loves people, mankind. And this He says, fear not. How many times did Jesus say, fear not? 
more than he said anything else, by the way. And he says it several times in this 43rd Isaiah here. Fear not, for I am with you. What did Jesus say in his last words to his disciples? I am with you even to the end of the chronos, kairos, age, the end of time, the end of the world, literally. I am with you. Listen to this. I will gather you. The gathering of God's people is what the preaching of the gospel is all about. The gospel is to go to all the world. Every pair of ears is to hear the gospel. And those whom God has called by His grace will hear the gospel and believe the gospel. It is to go to the whole world. And that's what he said when he said, begin in Jerusalem where you're going to stay till the Spirit comes. But then you go immediately to Judea, which is the little small country there in, in that part of Palestine. Then Samaria, the large neighbor to the north. And then to the end of the world, to the uttermost part of the earth, which could mean anywhere and everywhere around the globe. But it probably had a technical meaning in that day, meaning to Rome which is where the story of Acts takes us. It takes the gospel to the city of Rome. And there the Lord says, I will gather you. Say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. It's where the gospel is to go, the ends of the earth. Why? Because God's got sons and daughters at the end of the earth. The Lord has sons and daughters at the end of the age. And he wants them brought in. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. The creation is only, only completed, only repaired, only restored in the preaching of the gospel. The creation is marred by the fall, but it is restored in Christ. And the preaching of the gospel makes the creation once again for the glory of God. Listen, it says, all the nations gathered together and the people's Assemble. That's literally what the word congregation and church and assembly means. It means the gathering together of God's people. Verse 10, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. I am the Lord. I declared, I saved and proclaimed. Well, if I were a preacher, I'd stop and preach right here. <laughs> There's always a place to preach, somewhere in a sermon. And here it is. The Lord says, I declare. That's preaching the straightforward truths of the gospel message. And saved and proclaimed. Proclaim means to make it known, to broadcast it. And He said, I saved. In the middle of declaring and proclaiming, He's saving could it be that the gospel must be preached in order for men and women to be saved? Could it be that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God? And how shall they hear except there be a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? The Lord says, I declared, I saved and proclaimed again in verse 12. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. I am God. I am He. I am the Holy One. And then toward the end, he said, the people whom I have formed for myself, that they might declare 
my praise. That's the point of preaching and witness, excuse me, and witnessing. It's in order that somebody might hear the gospel and come to know the Lord and become a walking, talking praise vehicle for the Lord. It's interesting, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Did you know the name Judah, as of the tribe of Judah and as of the, the house of Judah, and as of that which became Jew, Judah, with King David and all the things that happened. And Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. Did you know the word Judah means in Hebrew? Praise. Just very, the name itself shows what we are to do in our gospel preaching. And then finally, let's not ever, ever get away from this particular picture. Verse 25 of that, of that chapter. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions. I will not remember your sins. That's preaching the atoning death, the cleansing, purging death of Jesus Christ. You never get away from it. You can say a lot of wonderful things about God, but you haven't told the essence of Him unless you've talked about the cross. You can say a lot of things from a pulpit. You can do a lot of preaching about God and His sovereignty and His wonder and His, His glory and His power and His goodness and His greatness, but you haven't preached the gospel till you've talked about, I blot out your transgressions and I remember not your sins. And then there's one more little phrase that I just can't walk away from. He said, I do that. I am He who blots out your transgressions and will not remember your sins for my own sake. Ultimately, the gospel is about God. His name. His glory. His holiness. His righteousness. His justice. His mercy. His love. That's what the gospel's about. Oh, we're the beneficiaries and there's a lot to say about what accrues to us in the gospel. But the Lord saves us not because we deserve it, not because we're going to pay Him back and reward Him, not because He's going to make a, some kind of profit out of the venture, but He does it for His own sake. That's why we believe in the sovereignty of God. That's why we believe in the sovereignty of God in the gospel. The gospel is not who deserves it and who doesn't. It isn't about who makes this decision and who doesn't make that decision. It's not about who has a certain amount of gifts and certain amount of of uh, manifestation of holiness. It's nothing about us. Ultimately, He does it for His own sake. It's His business. It's His enterprise. It's not for you to know the times and the seasons. It's not for you to know the whys and the why fors. I was teaching a Bible study this past week. First question I got when we opened up for questions. God, Ron, why do you think God chose Israel? Of course, you know, you can just imagine where that question is going to go a thousand different directions, especially with an audience that's not members of our church necessarily taught. And I'm just wondering where the question is going to go. But the Lord does say why He chose Israel. 
He said it wasn't because you were big. It wasn't because you were important. It wasn't because you were the mightiest nation on earth. It wasn't, I chose you for my namesake. I chose you for my glory. The mysteries of election that we, that we scratch our head and we worry about, they all resolve into the mind and the heart of God. It's not for you to know why God does this or that. It is enough for you to know God. Don't worry about election. Just get to know the elector. Don't worry about whether election's fair. Figure out whether God's fair or not. Don't try to figure out how election comes about and how the people that I've chosen for my namesake and called them by my name, how that all works out. Just hear God when He says, Call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and, mighty, great and mighty things which you know not. Just hear him when he says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Just hear him when he says, Come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Hear him when he says, He that believeth in me shall not be ashamed. Hear his voice and respond with a yes, I will and I will bear witness to it.